Before we begin our study tonight, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your people who have come out tonight. We thank you for these inspired books that are so precious that you preserve for us. We have them in the English language. What a wonderful joy and privilege that is. As we begin to embark on this new journey through this book, we pray that you would go before us and make this a very profitable study. We pray that you would use this book to accomplish things in our minds and hearts and lives. And for that, we will thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we just, as you know, last week finished the book of Micah, and what a book it was. God sent Micah to warn the political and religious and business leaders of the capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem that they were heading or leading the people far away from the Lord. They were leading them far away from the word of God, so God was going to send his judgment against his own people. Instead of these leaders directing the people to be serious about God and his word, they kept leading the people away from God. They led them straight into judgment. They kept telling the people that everything was okay in their relationship with God. They were telling the people that they were living in the land of the free and the home of the blessed. And all they had to do was basically enjoy life. They were at peace with God, even though they were involved in idolatrous and immoral things, and they were greedy and corrupt. They were telling the people, everything is fine. So, as you remember, God sent Micah to warn them. In fact, God actually named the key power that he was going to use to judge them and his people, and that was Assyria. He specifically named that in Micah chapter 5 and verses 5 to 6. Now, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. You need to know that because it was the most spectacular standing city in the world at this time. This was not a run-down city that was on the verge of becoming a ghost town. This was a spectacular city. And sure enough, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians destroyed Samaria, and in 701 B.C., they almost destroyed Jerusalem, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, surrounded Jerusalem, ready to attack them, and had it not been for the sovereign intervention of God, he would have succeeded. But God intervened, and 185,000 soldiers who surrounded Jerusalem died in the night, so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, returned to Nineveh. Now, all of this was the sovereign work of God. So Assyria, with Nineveh as the capital, was being permitted by God to punish his own people. Because his own people refused to respond to the word of God and refused to make changes in life. They were drifting far away from the Lord. So God raised up Assyria, Nineveh being the capital, and he used them as his weapon. Now the question arises, what happens if you happen to be the nation or person that God uses to punish his own people? Let's say that you're a mayor of a city or you're a governor of a state. Or let's say that you're an attorney general of a state. Or let's say you're a senator or you're a congressman. You're a president of a country. And let's say that God permits you to come to power. And you know you don't care about God. You know you don't care about the word of God. You don't care if people obey the scriptures at all. But here you are. You find yourself in power. And you use your power to promote whatever it is you want to promote. You use your power to promote godless things contrary to God and his word, and God permits you to seemingly dominate his own people for a while. He seems to be allowing you to be on top of the world in what you're decreeing concerning the people of God. So what exactly is God going to do to you when he's done accomplishing his purposes? 
When God is through using God-mocking, Bible-hating people, or when God is done using God-mocking, power-crazed people that are anti-him and anti-his son, and he completes using them in his sovereign plan, just exactly what is God going to do to that person or power? Well, Nahum is a book that tells the story. Nahum gives us the answer to the question, And quite honestly, if I were a political or religious leader or business leader, and I didn't care about God, I didn't care about the Word of God, I didn't care about being right with God, and I yet had been entrusted with power that somebody gave me so that I was in a position of authority, I'd be very intimidated by this book. Not only would I be intimidated by the book, it would scare me. Because what this book says is, if you use your power... To resist God and his word, you're heading to doom. And this book tells what God is eventually going to do to someone he's permitted to be in power. The people that he permitted to be in power, at this time the Assyrians, the capital Nineveh, were making mockery of him and his word. Nahum is a book that says God is going to become your enemy. God has a sovereign plan for every leader, and every leader is fulfilling that sovereign plan. We saw that in the book of Romans last week. There's no person in political power that is there except by sovereign decree or ordinance of the Lord. We may not know the plan. We may not have a clue why he allows certain people to be in power, but I guarantee you God knows. And if the leader is leading people in ways that are corrupt, God says, I have a reason for allowing you to be there. I actually have a reason for permitting you to be in power. But once I've accomplished what I intend to accomplish by allowing you to be in power, Nahum tells the vivid story of what he's going to do to them. And in the next weeks, I'd like to take you on a journey through a book. This book, it's a very serious book, very sacred book, very solemn book. Now, to begin the study, we're going to do it in question-answer form. That's the way we introduce books of the Bible. It kind of gives us a roadmap of where we're headed and some of the background of the book. And we're going to ask and answer some questions tonight concerning this book. And we're going to ask and answer these questions for you. And the first one is, why study the book of Nahum? And there are four reasons why we study the book. And the first one you know if you've been around this church for a while. The reason we're going to study this book is because it is one of only 66 inspired books that God has given to man. Now, Nahum is a small little book. It's interesting, it's a small little book, but most people have never studied it. There are only three chapters in the book. There are only 47 verses. But I tell you what, this book, as you will see, is potent, and it's a book that's inspired by God. The fact that Nahum actually belongs in the inspired scriptures, including the actual words of the text that have been preserved, have, as Carl Amerding said, never been seriously challenged. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in Alexandria, Egypt from B.C. 250 to 150, Nahum was one of the books that was translated and listed in one of the 12 minor prophet books of the Old Testament. That translation, of course, is called the Septuagint. Nahum is listed as a minor prophet book, number seven, and was listed between Micah and Habakkuk, just exactly where it sets in our English Bibles. Fragment manuscripts of this book were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, in Qumran Cave number four in 1952, there were 100 copies of Bible books in Hebrew, and not only were there copies of the book of Nahum, but there was a commentary on the book of Nahum that was found, which was dated as being written somewhere around the year 1 B.C. We 
Already mentioned that Nahum was part of the Septuagint translation, but there have been manuscripts of Nahum found in the Codex Vaticanus. There have been manuscripts found in the Codex Ioniticus and Codex Marcalianus. All of those contain the book of Nahum. And when Nahum opens, it's quite clear it's an oracle. You'll notice the first verse, the oracle of Nineveh. And when you go down to verse 14, the text says that the Lord has commanded this, so that would indicate those are statements of inspiration. Nahum is basically saying this is from God. This book in the Bible is from God. It's inspired from him. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the name of the book is Nahum. I'm going to pronounce it in Hebrew, but I'm not going to do it anymore after I do this, because I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) But it's Nakum. And there's the guttural sound. Nakum is how you would pronounce it in Hebrew. In the Greek Bible, the name is Naum. And in the English and Latin Bible, the name of the book is Nahum. That's the name we're going to use. Clearly, it is a rare, inspired, preserved book of God in the Bible. And that's why we're going to study it, because it's an inspired book of God. He only gave 66 of those inspired books to men. And so we're going to study that book. Now, the second reason we're going to study it is because Nahum is a book that shows what God will do to godless leaders once he's done using them. The opening of the book says, the oracle of Nineveh, and this oracle is one of destruction. What Nahum does is he aims this prophecy straight at Nineveh. That comes out of the first verse, the oracle of Nineveh. He aims it straight at Nineveh. Stephen Miller, who wrote a commentary on this book, said almost every verse in the book, deals in some way with the destruction of Nineveh. Ray Stedman said the attribute that God wants Nahum to reveal is, boy, God has an angry side. Now, if you're one of those people or powers, and you're making a mockery of God and his word, and you're in any position of power, and you start reading this book of Nahum, the first message that God gives to you is, I am an avenging God. Notice that from verse 2. I'm a jealous and avenging God. I'm an avenging God. God wants people to understand I have that side to me. And it's clear that he's an avenging God. And when he's done using powers for his purposes, he will pour out his wrath on them. And that should be something that really should prompt a godless political business or religious leaders to say, you know what, I better rethink what I'm doing. Perhaps I better make some drastic changes right now while I still have a chance. Because if I hurt God's people, if I use the power that I have to do things contrary to God, he's a jealous God for his people and he's avenging God to me. Two sins that have dominated the world are idolatry and immorality. And at any given time, in any dispensation, you can find those two sins prevalent in a nation or a power that is not right with God. Now, God permits people to get in power in these states, and they can either lead people into a right way that God would deem as right, or they can lead people away from him. So let's say that God lets some idolatrous, immoral person come to power and lead the state of Michigan, for example. Well, Nahum says it's God who permitted you to have the power. He's the one who allowed you to be in power, and you promote things that are false. God's permitting you to do that for a while. But once he's done accomplishing his purposes for the reason that he let you be in power in the first place, Nahum says, I'm going to tell you what God will do to you. This prediction is a prediction against the city of Nineveh, and it is very specific. 
It's very targeted. Nahum says, you watch what God will do to Nineveh. He's permitted the leaders of Assyria to be in power. He's permitted them to do things that are even hurtful and harmful to the people of God. And once he's completed the program that he has for them, Nahum says, this is what God's going to do to you. So we're going to study it. I think we need a good dose of this book. Thirdly, because Nahum is a book that describes that God protects and cares for faithful people. I want you to notice verse 7 of the first chapter. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. That's an encouraging verse. Because what God is telling his people is, look, I do permit godless people to be in power. I do permit them to have authority. I do permit them to reign. I have purposes for what I'm using them. But I also want you to know, you who love me, I have some wonderful promises for you. And I promise my faithful people that I'll watch over you. I will protect you in times of trouble. You will discover when you are even in a world that I'm allowing these kinds of people and powers to dominate, you can take your refuge in me because you will discover I will take care of you. It's a book that has a wonderful message for people of God. When he's in the process of judging godless people, he's also in the process of protecting the godly people. So we need that. We need it as God's people to know when we're going through difficulties and we don't see things that look too right in our eyes. We need to know God is still looking out for his faithful people. And a fourth reason we're going to study this is because this is a book of prophecy for Israel. Israel is promised that one day she will be in her land and not one wicked person will ever be in her land again. Notice in the first chapter in verse 15, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. And if you drop down to verse 2 of chapter 2, For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. Man, what a book for Israel. What a book for Israel. He's allowed Gentile powers to dominate her for years. But here's what he promises. When I get done with that program with the Gentiles, when the times of the Gentiles have been complete, I'm going to do some wonderful things for the nation Israel. He's a jealous God. He's an avenging God. He's a good God for his people, and he'll do great things for Israel. So for those reasons, we're going to study this book of Nahum. Now, the next question is, who is Nahum? Nahum doesn't give us a lot of information about himself. He gives us his name, Nahum, in verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. His name means comforter or consolation. It's interesting because the message that he's going to present is not going to be a comfort to the enemies of God. The message that he will present will be great comfort to the people of God, but it certainly is not going to be a comforting message that he's going to give concerning Nineveh or Assyria. We learn that he was an Elkoshite, and that's really all we know about him. Apparently, he was a prophet who was from Elkosh. Now, since I'm preaching this in September, and I lived in the West for many years, and I usually hunted elk in the Rocky Mountains in the month of September in Wyoming, I like to think that Nahum, coming from Elkosh, was an elk hunter. Now, I'm just making that part of it up. I can tell you this about him. He wasn't a timid guy. He was the kind of guy who certainly was fearless when it came to heralding the truth. He knew a lot about theology and a lot about doctrine. He certainly knew a lot about God. 
There have been three views where Elkosh is located, and I think I've solved the riddle for you, so we'll solve it for you tonight. So the first place that has been suggested where Elkosh is located is a city in Assyria. It was a city located about 30 miles north of Nineveh on the Tigris River. In the 16th century, Arab tradition identifies Elkosh with Elkosh, which is a village near modern-day Mosul in Iraq. There's a tomb there called the Tomb of Nahum, which is this location. So I'm going to use number one, that Elkosh was a city of Assyria, and say that is where perhaps Nahum is buried. We'll put that there. He's buried right that next to that city, number one. Number two, some have said Elkosh was a small city in Galilee. There was a city in Galilee with this name. And one biblical scholar, John Davis, said Capernaum actually means, notice the end of Capernaum, Nahum, the village of Nahum or the village of Nahum. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin around the year AD 400, said that Nahum was born there. He said he actually visited and saw some relics that were presented to him that became relics of his birthplace. Eusebius also understood the place where Nahum was from as being in Galilee. In fact, the name Capernaum today is Kafar Nahum, which in Hebrew means village of comfort. So I'm going to say, number two, he perhaps was born there. So he's buried in number one. He was born in number two. And then you come to number three. Some have said that Elkosh was a small village just south of Judah, which would explain why he has so many references to Judah, and we could say perhaps that's where he lived. So we take all three of those places. He probably had contact with all three of those places. He probably buried in Elkosh in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. He was born in Capernaum in Galilee, and then he moved to a small village south of Jerusalem, Elkosh, and he lived there. So he may have been born in the north in Galilee, and then he lived in the south. That would explain why he had so much information about the totality of the land. We may not know just exactly where Elkosh was located, but what we can determine about Nahum is he was a tremendous student of the Word of God. He was a very skilled theologian when it came to unlocking truth about God. He had a profound and deep grasp of the sovereignty of God. Now that brings us to the third question, when did he live and write? We're going to get real close to that date, I think, in light of this text. We can track it and get very close to the date that he wrote the book. First of all, the book is obviously written before God demolishes Nineveh. That's obvious because the thing begins, the oracle of Nineveh, Nineveh is still standing, so it obviously is written before God is going to destroy Nineveh, and he destroyed Nineveh in 612 B.C. The message that Nahum gives to the Assyrians and Nineveh will be that they're going to be destroyed makes no sense if it were already destroyed. So we know that it was written prior to the destruction of Nineveh. Second, we know from Nahum 3.8, and I want you to go over to Nahum 3.8 if you would. Are you better than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? We know from that statement there that Noamon had been destroyed at the time that Nahum wrote, because he basically uses that as an illustration to say, you're no better than that city, and you're no better than what God's going to do to that city. That's the argument that he's using there, which makes the date 663 B.C., because that's when Noamon was destroyed. Now, Noamon is the Hebrew name of the city Thebes, 
And the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal conquered that city and destroyed that city in 663 BC. So based on that data, we can say, well, Nahum wrote this book somewhere between 663 BC when Noamon was destroyed and 612 BC when Nineveh was destroyed. Since we have no mention in this book of the Medes and the Persians, they're not in the picture, they came to power in 645 BC, and we have no mention of the Babylonians who came to power in 626 BC, we can assume that Nahum was written somewhere around the year 650 to 645 BC, and that's pretty close. That's zeroing in on the time frame of when he wrote. Nahum wrote shortly after Micah, and he wrote shortly before Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. Now, we know that when Jonah preached to Nineveh about 100 years before it was destroyed, Nineveh repented, and that made Jonah mad. About a year or two before Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, Assyria had gone in to Israel in the north and had devastated that land. And as a result of that, Jonah saw Nineveh and Assyria as just being the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people, and he wanted God to wipe them out. That's what made him mad. I mean, Jonah, a hundred years before Nahum writes, he's in that city mad. That's what put him on the run. He said, I'm not going to that city and telling them they can repent. So he gets on a boat. You know the story of Jonah, and he heads out the sea. He's not about to go to that city and preach. That's what made Jonah mad. Well, what we need to understand, or what Jonah needed to understand, is that God was angry with Nineveh, but God's anger is a slow boil. It takes a while. This is something God's people need to understand about God. In fact, notice verse 3 of chapter 1. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. So God was angry with what Nineveh was doing. But when Jonah went to the city and preached and the city repented, he gave them about a hundred year reprieve. But now they were back right to their old ways. That was short lived. And as a result of that, Nahum prophesied a hundred years after Jonah what God was going to do to Nineveh. And as you'll see, he did do it. Which brings us to the fourth question, what was Nineveh like? Now, Nineveh is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10. It was a city that was built by Nimrod, who actually went to Assyria and built it. There have been inscriptions found that say the city was built in 2300 B.C. Nineveh was the greatest capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It flourished for about 200 years, from about the year 800 to 612 B.C. It was the greatest city in the world. Nineveh was located on the bank of the Tigris River. As I mentioned, about a hundred years before Nahum wrote this, Jonah called Nineveh a great city. When he went there, he called it a great city. The Tigris River was a western and southern border of the city. There was a wall that was eight miles long that formed the northern and eastern boundaries. The city was three miles wide, eight miles long inside the walls. And the suburbia areas extended 14 miles north, 20 miles south. The city was so large, if you remember the book of Jonah, it took him three days, three days just to walk through the city, telling people that God was going to destroy the city if they didn't repent. And of course, you know the story, they repented. God said at that time when Jonah was there that there were 120,000 children that were living inside Nineveh that were not old enough to tell their right hand from their left hand and many animals that were there. So you can assume 
just from those numbers, that this city had somewhere between 600,000 and a million people in it. Now, the predictions that Nahum makes about what God is going to do to this city are astounding when you consider the grandeur of the city that's standing when Nahum makes these predictions. I mean, when Nahum makes this prediction, she's in the epitome of her power. She's not some rundown city. This is the greatest city of the world. This is the big time. This is the big city. And it was a city that was dedicated to the goddess Ishtar, which was a goddess of love and sensuality and fertility. It was a city that was known for idolatry. It was a city that was known for immorality. It was brutal. It was a bloody city. As we mentioned, it was built in 2300 B.C. by Nimrod. It was referred to by the king of Babylon. The city was expanded by the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser called himself king of the world. He called himself king of the world in about 1000 B.C. The city had a palace of Asher Nasser Paul. It was a palace of Sargon II. It was the military base of Shalamanser III, who was a brutal military man. In fact, he had monuments in the city that contained the names of Jehu and Ahab that were both found within the city. And the city received treasures and a great library. When Asher Banapal defeated Thebes in Egypt in 663 BC, he brought treasures to Dineveh from Thebes, Babylon, and Susa. They had a library with 20,000 tablets in it. I mean, this place was spectacular. So for a prophet like Nahum to step up and say, I'm going to tell you what God's going to do to you. I mean, you would look at him and you'd say, are you crazy? This is the most spectacular city in the world. Elliot Johnson observed Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, most idolatrous empires in the world. When the Ninevite Asher Nasserpal had a military victory, he wrote, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against the city. Their young men and their maids burned in the fire. In another account that was given by Shalemanser III, he said, A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their use and maidens I burn up in the flames. Sennacherib said, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made their gullets and their entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. It's no wonder that Nahum the prophet in chapter 3 verse 1 calls Nineveh, you're a city of blood. What is God going to do to a place like that? Where you just are known for doing evil, corrupt things, killing innocent life, slaughtering people, slaughtering babies through abortion. What do you think God's going to do to a power like that? Think he's going to turn his head and let it go? Ah, he'll simmer. He'll simmer wrath. This was a big-time city. Don't kid yourself. When Nahum steps up to the plate and issues this prophecy, this was a powerful, intimidating city. God says, you're nothing to me, and I'll bring you down. And when Alexander the Great fought a battle near the area of Nineveh in 331 B.C., just a little over 300 years after Nahum makes this prediction. He didn't even know there had been a city there. Flood waters that apparently washed the city away. Something that Nahum will actually predict in the book. 
In fact, it wasn't until 1850 A.D. that the ruins of Nineveh were discovered by archaeologists before they discovered those ruins. Liberal commentators didn't even believe Nineveh existed. And today, the area, although you can see a few of the things that they've uncovered, archaeologists have uncovered, it's called the Mound of Many Sheep. Man, I guess God did do to Nineveh what Nahum said he was going to do. I mean, Nahum comes along and said, he's had enough of you. He's let you be in power. You've misused your power. So he has been simmering. He's slow to anger. But when he reaches the boiling point, he comes in. He doesn't care who the power is, how big the power is. They're going down. They're going out. And that's exactly what happened to this city. And you'll see it come to life in the book. The fifth question is, what's the theme of the book of Nahum? Well, the theme of Nahum is quite easy to decipher. The oracle is given against Nineveh from an avenging God in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. God says, I'm going to make a complete end of Nineveh in chapter 1 verse 9. God says in chapter 1 verse 14, I'm going to destroy her idols and her memory. In chapter 2 verse 8, God says, I'm going to put Nineveh to flight. In chapter 2 verse 13, God says, I'm going to burn up the military. In chapter 2, verse 13, God says, I will prevent Nineveh from having a voice anywhere in the world again. Never again will she have any clout or any authority anywhere. In chapter 3, verse 13 and 15, he said, I'm going to burn Nineveh and the people in it. That's the message Nahum has to take to Nineveh. So we could say the theme of the book is God is in sovereign control of evil power, and he permits them for a while to come to power. He has purposes. He'll even permit them for a while to dominate his own people. But once he's accomplished those purposes for his people, he will use that same sovereign power to totally destroy those who made a mockery of him and his word. What God wanted to do by raising up Nahum is he wanted to comfort his people with the knowledge that godless leaders and tormentors are going to soon be gone. He lets them have their shining moment in the sun. But God says, I want you to understand this if you're my people. There's a justice side to me. And it's true, I'm slow to anger, but I'm great in power. I allow these leaders to come to positions of power for my purposes. And if they do not use their power in ways that please me, it'll be just a matter of time and I will wipe them out. Now, that's what made Jonah mad, because it wasn't happening fast enough. He doesn't even want to go to Nineveh and warn them of this. He basically, a hundred years before this happens, said, I'm not going there telling them that. I want you to destroy them. I want you to wipe them out. God says, no, no, this will be my way, my time. But what God's people can discover through life is in times of trouble, he will take care of faithful people. He's our refuge. And those people who do horrible things, they do immoral things, and they think they're getting away with it, this book of Nahum says, no, you're not. Oh, you may have a little time to exist, but you have a bullseye target on you. And there will come a moment when God will pull the trigger. He'll remove you. No matter how intimidating or powerful our enemies may be, We can just keep trusting God. He is an avenging God. 
And those who do evil things against his word and his people will pay a price. But he also wanted his own people to know, I'm a stronghold for my faithful people who take refuge in me. May we pray. Our Father, there's a lot we can learn from this book of Nahum, and I pray we'd learn it. There's a real timeliness to this book in the way we think. We get it. We get what Jonah was thinking. But we also see what Nahum is presenting. So we pray that we would come to understand your will in the time in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen.